So good to be back with you. I want to thank Kevin, even though he filled out his bracket with the Golden Gophers, did a great job of speaking last week. He really didn't do that. I'm just teasing. He's a pretty smart guy. Um, did a really great job last week, so thank you to Kevin for that. We had a great trip. Thanks for all your prayers. And somebody asked me this morning, what day is it? And I said, I don't know. Why are we having church on Wednesday? I don't know. I mean, we're all a little bit off right now, but so good to be with you. So we come now to the end of the Joseph narrative. I don't know about you, but this has been an amazing experience for me. I've learned so much about God. I've learned so much about myself. But at this period of time, as we come to this particular text, fear gripped Joseph's family. The great patriarch was coming to the end of his life. And as Jacob was about to breathe his last, he left one instruction. He said, bury me in Canaan in the cave of my forefathers. And then he died. And Joseph wept over him. They had just reconciled. But the brothers, now that was a different story because the brothers were now afraid that buffer zone between themselves and Joseph named Jacob was gone and they feared that Joseph now would take the opportunity to exact revenge on them for all they had done to him. But they had forgotten, just like we many times forget, that this wasn't their story. This was God's story. This is the story of redemption. God is pushing the narrative forward. And even through all of the lies and the deceit and the murderous intent, all of this human weakness and sinfulness, God never forsook them because this was his plan that they persevere. And this morning I want you to know that God will never forsake you either. And as we look at the immortal words of Joseph this morning, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be brave. I want you to know that God is a rock that cannot be moved. And more than that, He is a force to be reckoned with. Because what we'll see today is we'll see a scared group of men bowing before Joseph. And he will encourage them. He will say to them, fear, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. As for you, you did evil against me, but God meant it for good. God means everything for good. And that's the hope we have as believers. God means everything for good. So before we get into the text this morning, which I think is an amazing text, let's just do a quick catch-up and review and see how God is intertwining himself through this entire narrative. And so the first point I want to make as, as we get going this morning is that God is the one that painted the Joseph story. He, he did the canvas. It's his thing. And the whole point of it was to get his people, Joseph's family, which was the, the first group, Israel, from Canaan to the south into Egypt so they could survive and grow into a great nation so that Jesus Christ could come into the world and save the world. And as we go along this morning, I'm going to confront you with 
where are you with this Messiah that came from this story? Are you, are you just half in? Are you all in? Or have you never met Jesus? Because he's the point of the story. And it all began with that famous robe, the tunic that Joseph received from his father. And it wasn't just a pretty multicolored robe. That would be a Broadway show. There was more to it than that. He then had the birthright. But he shouldn't have had the birthright. He was a favored child. And then he had a dream. And the dream was that his family, his brothers, would bow down to him and that he would rule over them. This did not play well with his brothers. And they became jealous and they became the killers of the dream. And they plotted, how are we going to do away with this dreamer? So they came up with this brilliant idea. They would take him up north to Shechem. They would find a dry water cistern. They would dump him in the cistern. And that would be the end of him. But as they were eating their food with their brother dying in a cistern, they saw a caravan coming and they thought, well... We have a better idea. Let's sell them. Let's make some money. And we can still go back. It'll still be no problem to us anymore. And so they did just that. They went back and they lied to their father. And Joseph was forgotten. But not by God. God never forgets. God had his eye on Joseph. God was moving the story forward. Because God means everything for good. And at the perfect time and place... This caravan came and they sold Joseph and he ended up being purchased by the captain of Pharaoh's garden. All of a sudden, there was this young Jewish man in the presence of Egyptian power. And Joseph rose through the ranks quickly because God favored him. And he was training him. But then darkness happened again. He's accused of rape and he's, he's thrown in prison. And there he languishes, but again, ascends to the heights of power. More training. And then two men had a dream. He interpreted both of them. They said they would remember him, and they didn't. He was forgotten. Languishes in prison. But God, God didn't forget. Because then it was Pharaoh who had the dream. And then the light went on. Oh, there's this guy. He, he interprets dreams. So Joseph is now standing before Pharaoh and interprets the dream. Seven years, you're going to have all the food you can handle. But then it'll be seven years of sparse famine. And Pharaoh was so impressed by this man that he said, I want you to administrate the whole thing. I want you to make sure that at the end of that first seven years that we are going to be okay in Egypt. And so he raised Joseph to this incredible seat of power in Egypt. But that also meant that his family only had one place to buy food. And little did they know, the man that they would see would be their brother. They didn't know that yet. So they would go to see Joseph. And then Joseph played a game with them. And he planted evidence on them. And he drew fear out of them. Because, number one, he wanted to see his blood brother, Benjamin. Number two, he wanted to see if these brothers, treacherous Violent men, if they could actually lead Israel into the future. So finally, when the game was over, 
And Joseph was convinced there was sweet reconciliation that happened. Both with the brothers and with the father. There was weeping. There was embracing. And then God put them on this beautiful plot of land in Egypt. There they could flourish. There they could become a great nation. There they could become a nation that would birth Messiah. And that's where we pick up the story. And what we're going to see today is that didn't happen by accident. God, that's exactly where God wanted Israel to be. And so, yes, there was hardship. Yes, there was pain. Yes, there was uncertainty. Yes, there was all kinds of human sin. But God's plan worked out just the way he wanted it to work. Because God works everything for good. And so take your text, take your Bible, and turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 49. And we're going to begin today in verse 29. You can also take that Bible and the seat back in front of you and turn to page number 43. Or just hop on your Ridgewood app. And there you'll find the texts and an outline. You can just type notes right into it and you can take it home with you. It's quite a nice feature to have. So turn there now in your Bibles. And what you'll notice as you arrive on chapter 49 is that the first half is an oracle of Jacob. In 48 and 49, he's doing what fathers do in this culture. He's, he's tying his heirs to the promises of God. And the promise of God is, I'm going to give you the promised land. So Jacob is telling his sons, this is how you're going to fit into that plan. But we're going to start in verse 29. Because here, Jacob breathes his last, but not before he gives us a picture of God's sovereignty and how God will work out the best for Israel. So beginning in 29, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his What an interesting final wish. Bury me in the cave with my forefathers that I could be gathered to my people. And here's the point of that is God is already working. God would bring Jacob to Canaan, but not in life. He would bring him there in death. You see, Jacob knew the promises of God. He knew that at some point Israel would arrive in the promised land. And he also knew that this was his forefathers. The patriarchs were in this cave. The cave of Machpelah is recorded in chapter 23, the purchase of it. It is in Hebron, which is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's in what we call the West Bank or Palestinian-controlled area right now. So it's difficult to visit. But this is the bearing place of the patriarch. And that term here, gathered to my people, probably just means 
this view of the afterlife that the, the Jewish people had, it was fuzzy, it was shadowy, it was called Sheol, not nearly as defined as we have now with the revelation of the New Testament. But he had the hope of a future. He knew God's promises. He trusted that this is where they were going to end up because God had promised them this land. And so Jacob was acting on faith even in death. But what I find interesting here is that God would bring this patriarch home. He's, he's not in Canaan. He's in Egypt. This is a, a foreign land. If you look at a map, it's a long way from where modern day, say, Jerusalem is all the way down to Egypt. But this is where he had traveled. This is where he now was. Everything here is Egyptian. The lamenting ceremony is Egyptian. Embalming is Egyptian. Having to get a permit to travel was Egyptian. But God never forgot his patriarch. His eye was on him the whole time time and now when it was time for him to go home god would guide him there because this is the promise of god and you see we never have to wonder if god is working in our lives it this is proof again that he is always working he's always working and i know that sometimes we just feel so out of place and we just feel so off and, and our insides are all over the place and we're experiencing anxiety and we're wondering if we really are going to make it. We wonder if we can really do this job. We wonder if we can really raise these kids or survive in this marriage. And we think, no one really knows how I'm feeling because I can't tell anybody any of this. But I'm here to say that God, God sees you. He sees you. He sees the struggle, sees the pain, sees the doubts. God never forgot his man. And now as he prays, he wants to go to the promised land. And, and there God would fulfill the dream. Israel would be in Egypt. God turns everything for good. And we'll see that even more deeply now and clearly as we enter the climatic portion of this entire narrative. This is where I want you to be encouraged. This is where even when life is far different than you thought it ever would be. Anybody else can share that with me? I wasn't smart enough to draw my life up when I was younger, but if I would have, it wouldn't look like this. The experiences I've had, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have ever imagined them. I would have never wanted them. But now I see that God has, has weaved this beautiful canvas together. Because God's way is always the best way. His plan is always the best plan. God is always working. So now in 15 through 21, Joseph's brothers, here they are. They're no longer protected by their father. They're exposed. Their sin continues to haunt them at every turn. But now here's the central idea of the entire narrative. And Joseph is the one who begins to deliver the message. So we started at 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father 
gave this command before he died. 17. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and, and, and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your, your father. And instead of being in any way bitter or vindictive, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Wept. And his brothers finally came into the room and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow, that's, that's, that's an amazing moment. Here's a man who has all of the power. Nothing but grace, just dripping with grace. Joseph, Jesus, the parallel again, grace, forgiveness, hope. And God had used all of that sin, all of those plots to kill, to paint the story. And amazingly and illogically, here's the point. God intends evil for good. And this kind of is where our minds get blown because we don't understand this. And we have these... We have these wars going on, Calvinism, Arminianism, sovereignty of God, not sovereignty of God, allowed or caused. Listen, don't try to figure it all out. Because all of this is being done by a being that we can't possibly understand. His ways are far above our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But what he does do is he takes evil and he turns it for good. That's for sure, because Joseph just assured his brothers of that. And again, the narrator here, he's relating this scene back to the dream. The dream was in 37. This is the second time they've now bowed down to him. The dream is coming true, but he is at work for good. And now they're relieved because Joseph is extending grace. And then there's this line that Joseph says, to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. This is the promise to Israel that's being kept alive. The brothers are alive. The father was alive when he came. Israel still existed and now would flourish because God sent Joseph there first. And so he's saying to them, don't fret. Your, your sin was real. Don't get me wrong, he said. Your acts were wrong, but God meant it for good. This is a prime example of how God can use human sin to accomplish good. But the, thing, the, the circumstance that really jumps to mind for me is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there he took this corrupt Jewish establishment, this, this high priest that was really a puppet of the Roman government, and he took these violent Roman soldiers and worked it all together where they, they nailed him 
onto a piece of wood for a crime he didn't commit, total sin, totally wrong, absolute violence, but yet that was God's plan all along. Because Jesus voluntarily laid his life down. But yet that was real sin. God works everything for good. Paul was convinced of this in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. He's painting a future for Israel. But here is the hard part of this, again, that we struggle with so much. And that's this point. Is that evil often precedes good. Or to put it another way, suffering often precedes the work of God. And not always suffering of our own doing. Sometimes at the hands of others. Joseph is an example of an incredibly wise man that absolutely fits this genre of the Old Testament. His life was like this this. The cream inside of an Oreo. It's crushed together by competing themes. He has brothers that want to kill him, but he has a God who is saving him. And so he sees how this narrative winds and turns. And yet God, on the other end, brings him exactly where he needs to be. But he went through living hell. And and sometimes when we tell Joseph's story, we get stuck. You know, we're in Sunday school and... And, and you get stuck on the robe of many colors. And the kids all go, that's pretty. That's nice. You might even get as far as to say, yeah, Joseph was in prison and God got him out of prison. And you can't talk to kids about Potiphar's wife. So that part of the story just goes away until they're like 25. Even though they're hearing it from their friends when they're, you know, six. What we fail to understand is that Joseph went through a living hell. He was abandoned left for dead, sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of rape. He went to prison, a place that was not pretty, that he didn't deserve to be. He was forgotten in prison. But God had to do all of that because God was training him. God was luring his family from Canaan to Egypt. And so suffering came before good. And that's the way it is in our lives so often. I know that's what I found in my own life. I found that in the darkest hours of my own life, that if I'm just patient and if I just walk with God and if I don't veer from my faith, that I know there'll be a time when I'll begin to understand more about what God is doing. And all of that suffering always ends up bearing some kind of fruit. And sometimes it's tangible fruit, sometimes it's not. But I trust that it's there. Because I know that after suffering, I love Jesus more than I did before. Which is illogical, but that's how this all works. So now we come to the death of Joseph. In verses 22 through 26, and... Sadly, he says goodbye to his brothers. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own. Remember, it was Ephraim and Manasseh that 
Joseph brought, these were Egyptian children. He brought them to Jacob, and Jacob blessed them in wrong order. He gave the blessing to Ephraim. Of course, he knew what he was doing. And then Joseph in 24 said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry you up, carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The last 60 years of Joseph's life were just breezed over by the narrator. All of a sudden, here we are. But what's clear in this little speech is that Joseph absolutely believed in God's promises because he's quoting the covenant. He's quoting the promise. Hey, we're going to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So bring my bones there. And when the exodus happened, they were carrying Joseph's bones toward the promised land. Joseph believed that's where Israel was headed. And the thing that sustained Joseph through all of this is that he believed in the promises of God. And so when suffering comes or when pain comes or when darkness or uncertainty come, that's when our faith is tested because that's when we have to decide. Am I going to follow God? Do I believe God or don't I? Because when things are going well, you don't have to really make any decisions. You just kind of go with it. Joseph believes in the promises of God. He believes that God's way is the best way and that they're headed for the promised land. And so in a lot of ways, this is really a hard story. There's all kinds of death. There's... So much lying, so much deceit. His brothers, in the middle of this story, kill people. But yet here we are, talking about the sovereignty of God. So here are some practical takeaways from this narrative. Joseph narrated, there is something for you here, and I think it's amazing. I could have spent hours on this. I won't. First, God's timing is absolutely perfect. Believe me, even when the slide comes up, the timing will be perfect. See? This is under the sovereignty of God as well. Joseph's brothers had evil intent. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. But at the perfect time and the perfect place, there they were with this caravan going by. Joseph is on the caravan headed for this destiny that God had for him. Perfect timing. All through the story, the things that happened were perfectly timed by God. And listen, you, you can know that that's happening in your life too. I love this passage from Lamentations. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful passage it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the lord how many times do we fret and complain you know what my biggest problem is i just have to say to myself sometimes just shut your mouth just stop talking quietly wait for god 
timing is perfect. So what, what you're waiting for, what you're praying for, what you're longing for, whether it be healing or friendships or a spouse or a new job or financial security, whatever it is, when God is ready, when it's his best for you, he'll pull the trigger. But not until it's perfect for you. Because he knows better than you. I know we all think we know what we want. We all think we know what we need. God knows. His timing is perfect. Secondly, what we get from this narrative is that reconciliation is possible. This is a big deal because many of us live in relationships that are not perfectly reconciled or families that are broken up. Back in verse 45, Joseph said to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God drove this reconciliation. And if you're humble, if you're willing to say you're sorry, if you're willing to be right with others rather than being right, reconciliation can happen. God's timing is perfect. And then thirdly, God's plan of redemption is marching forward. That's what we see here. The plan of redemption is Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Israel had to thrive because Messiah is Jewish. He needed to come from Israel. So the plan of redemption is marching forward. And it's all in the person of Jesus. And it's so sad to stand at the Western Wall and see these Orthodox Jews that come there every day and pray and pray and pray and they're praying for Messiah. Messiah's already come. He's already offered himself as king. And he's offering himself as your king. The question is, what are you going to do with that offer? In Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us has a sin problem. In Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death, spiritual death, in hell, forever, conscious torment. But at the end of that same verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, that he sent his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We are now confronted with Messiah because he comes from this story. And then in Revelation 3.20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. And the question is, will you open the door? Will you let him? Be the, the, the king of your life. Will you submit to him? Will you follow him to the ends of the earth? Will you say, I have no other purpose than to follow Jesus Christ? After Peter had denied Jesus three times, and then Jesus rose again, he took Peter aside and said, Peter, three times he asked him, Will you love my sheep? Three denials, three affirmations, new New life. Peter said, I will follow you till the end of the earth. Guess what Peter became? A great leader, a great preacher through the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you willing to make that commitment in your life today? If you are, then make sure that you tell someone that you came with. If you didn't come with anybody or you can't talk to them, find me. Find a staff member. If you want to find a staff member, go to the the desk. I need to talk to somebody from the pastoral staff. Come to people who will be praying here and just say, I want to give my life to Jesus. 
Listen, he is calling you. This whole story is about that. And, and this is an amazing verse. As you stand in the Jordan River, you can imagine this happening. John is out there baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Joseph story. This is the point. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Israel had to be saved because we needed to be saved. And Jesus is knocking on the door. Will you please let him in? Will you please let him in? Just a couple more. Now that we know the story, we know that we can bring hope to the world. Ridgewood Church can bring hope to the world. We have the capacity to bring hope to the world. This is why our mantra has become community groups, community groups, community groups. I know you're saying, we're tired of community groups. No, you haven't even entered one yet. You haven't even joined one yet. Because here's what we need to do. We need to form alliances or groups in neighborhoods where you can learn the Bible together. You can connect through doing life together. But we're not going to take you out of your sphere of influence. We're going to send you back into your sphere of influence and try to equip you. Because God has uniquely placed you there to be a priest in your neighborhood or in your workplace. So instead of pulling you out of your neighborhood or workplace, and we want you to be in church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No, we want you to be in the place that God has called you to be. And so this is hard church. This is hard to do church this way because you don't get explosive growth. And a lot of people leave at first because they don't like this vision because we're taught programs, 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 programs. Every week I'd be a program. No. That's not our vision. Our vision is come together as a family, teach your children the word, we'll help you, and then we're going to teach you how to be the priests of believers. That's why we need to be serious about evangelism. That's why we need to be serious about the mission because people need Jesus Christ. That's why we need to send missionaries into the field. That's why we need to multiply and do our vision because Jesus has come through this story. And then finally, this is the, this is the final point I want to leave you with. God is completely and eternally sovereign. All of the things that were spinning around here, all of this meandering that Moses does as he tells the story is all appointed by God for a perfect reason. And though your life seems to be meandering and it seems like you just can't make sense of parts of it, and you're confused and you're frustrated and you're angry and you're full of anxiety and fear, then just remember this narrative. Remember the narrative. And remember this particular verse, which is a great one. Psalm, Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. During those sleepless nights, during those times when you just wonder, is God even there? Just remember that he does whatever he pleases. His eye is on you. So listen. Joseph gave grace to his brothers. As for you... You did evil against me. God meant it for good. God means everything for good. So have courage. Be encouraged. And please open your life up to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible story. Thank you for 
always working out the best plan. And God, we don't claim to understand. We have finite minds. We're, we're, we, we think in black and whites. We think in rules that apply to us. But God, you're in a different sphere at a different level and you're conjuring up things that we can never even imagine. So God, will you help us to trust your sovereignty? Will you help us to take suffering and pain and learn to embrace it rather than run from it? Will you let the uncertainties of life be our teachers? We love you. And now we sing with all of our hearts to you. We worship you, our King. Amen.